Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is Day 16. Today we will be reading Book 5, Chapters 5-7 through 7 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast God's Planning. There you'll find weekly episodes and a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find God's Planning with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplanning.org. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. In these chapters, St. Augustine finally meets Faustus in a sort of much-anticipated meeting with this Manichaean bishop, who he hopes to answer a lot of his questions about Manichaean theology or philosophy, questions of creation, questions of evil. He ends up spending some time with him and conversation and debate. And as we know, he uh, he expected, or the expectation of St. Augustine is that Faustus might answer his questions in his pursuit of wisdom, in his pursuit of knowledge. But as it turns out, Faustus isn't that capable, and St. Augustine becomes pretty disillusioned. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Before we do, let's get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 5 However, who bade Manny to write about these things, which one can be ignorant of while nonetheless learning piety? For you have said to man, Behold piety and wisdom, though he can be ignorant of it, all the while knowing these other matters. However, because he did not even know these things, and nonetheless insolently dared to teach them, he clearly could have no knowledge of piety. For even when someone knows these worldly things, it is vain to make a show of such knowledge, whereas confession to you is piety. Thus this devious man spoke much about such philosophical matters, so that, having convinced others through what was said by those who had truly learned such matters, it would be all the clearer what understanding he himself had in other, more hidden matters. For he did not wish men to judge him to be someone lowly, but rather he went about persuading them that the Holy Spirit, the comforter and enricher of your faithful, was personally present within him with full authority. Thus, when it was discovered that he had taught false truths concerning heaven, the stars, and the movements of the sun and moon, matters which did not, however, pertain to religious doctrine, his sacrilegious presumption would become evident, given that he spoke not only about things he was ignorant of, but even falsified them, with so mad and vain a pride that he sought to ascribe them to himself as though he were a divine person. For when I hear any Christian brother who is ignorant or mistaken about these things, I can remain patient with him for holding such an opinion, nor do I see how any 
ignorance regarding the position or makeup of bodily creation can injure him, so long as he does not believe anything that is unworthy of you, O Lord and Creator of all. However, it does injure him if he imagines that it truly is part of the very doctrine of piety, and yet continues to stubbornly assert something he is actually ignorant about. In the infancy of faith, this is still an infirmity, but our mother charity bears with it until the newborn grows up to mature manhood, so as not to be tossed this and that way, carried about by every wind of doctrine. However, what about someone who is so bold as to put himself forth as a teacher, source, guide, and chief of all whom he could persuade to believe that in following him they were following no mere man, but rather your Holy Spirit? Who would not judge that such madness should be detested and utterly rejected, once such a person was convicted of having taught anything false at all. However, I had not yet clearly discovered whether or not the lengths of days and nights and the passing course of days and nights themselves, along with the eclipses of sun and moon and whatever else of this sort I read in other books, might in fact be explained in a way that harmonized with his sayings. Indeed, if they might be so explained in some way, then I still would wonder whether or not this was the truth of the matter. However, I could not rest my belief upon his authority, taking his reputed holiness as a motive for such trust. Chapter 6. Thus, nearly the whole of those nine years during which I had remained a disciple amid such intellectual doubts, I had longed with the greatest intensity to meet this Faustus. Other members of the sect whom I had met were unable to resolve the objections that I raised concerning these things. However, they promised that when this Faustus would come, he would be able to resolve these and greater difficulties for me very readily and fully. Thus, when he came, I found him to be a man who was pleasing in his speech, able to speak at greater length and in better terms, though always about the same things that they would say to me. But how could the most beautiful cupbearer help to slake my thirst for a more precious drink? My ears already were filled with what they had to say. His words did not seem better to me merely because they were expressed in better expressions, nor did they seem true merely because they were eloquently spoken, nor did his soul seem wise merely because his face was agreeable and his language graceful. But they who told me to wait for him were not good judges of these matters, and to them he seemed prudent and wise because of his pleasing speech. However, I felt that another sort of people were suspicious even of the truth and refused to assent to it even if it were delivered in smooth and flowing words. But you, O oh my God, already taught me by wonderful and secret ways. Therefore, I believe that you taught me, for you are teaching its truth. Nor is there any teacher of truth other than you, wherever or from whomever it might shine upon us. From you, therefore, I now learn that neither should anything seem to be true merely because it is eloquently expressed, nor, therefore, anything false merely because the words are unsophisticated sounding, nor, again, something true because it is unsophisticated, nor something false merely because it is expressed in splendid language. Rather, I learn that wisdom and folly are like wholesome and unwholesome food and are adorned and unadorned phrases like formal or rustic dinnerware. Either kind of food can be served on either sort of plate. Thus, the keen desire that I long had felt waiting to meet that man was truly delighted with his actions, passion and disputation, and ready choice of words for clothing his ideas. Thus I took delight in him, and with many others, indeed even more vigorously than they, I praised and extolled him. 
However, it troubled me that amid those who listened to him, I was not allowed to put forward in personal discussion with him the questions that troubled me. When I was able to do so along with my friend, speaking with him at an appropriate time, I brought forth some of the things that I found concerning. However, from the start, I found him to be utterly ignorant in the liberal arts, except grammar, though even in that regard his skill was ordinary. However, because he had read some of Cicero's orations and a few books of Seneca, some things written by the poets and a few Manichaean books that were written in clear Latin and likewise daily practiced the art of speaking, he had acquired a kind of eloquence that proved all the more pleasing and seductive because it was guided by his clever wit and a kind of natural gracefulness. Are not my recollections true, O Lord my God, judge of my conscience? My heart and memory lie open before you, who at that time directed me by the hidden mysteries of your providence, setting these shameful errors before my gaze, so that I might see and hate them. Chapter 7 Indeed, after it was clear that he was ignorant of the arts that I thought he had mastered, I began to despair that he would be able to set forth and resolve the difficulties that had been perplexing me. And one could be ignorant of such things and hold the truths of piety so long as he were not a Manichaean. For their books are full of wordy fables about the heavens, the stars, the sun, and the moon, and now I no longer thought that he could adequately answer my questions and tell me whether, after comparing these tales with the calculations I had read elsewhere in the philosophers, the account given by Manny was preferable, or at least as good as theirs. When I proposed this topic for reflection and discussion, he modestly said that he could not take up this task, for he knew that he was ignorant of these things and was not ashamed to confess it. Indeed, he was not one of those pratting people, many of whom have I endured, who tried to teach me these things without actually saying anything. This man, however, had a heart which, though not right in relation to you, nonetheless was altogether treacherous toward itself. For he was not altogether ignorant of his own ignorance, nor would he rashly become entangled in a dispute that he could not readily withdraw from. And I liked him all the better for this, for more beautiful is the modesty of a candid mind than the knowledge of those things that I desire to know. And this is how I found him to be as I posed even more difficult and obscure questions. Thus, my zeal for Manny's writings was blunted, and I felt even greater despair at the thought of trying to learn from others who taught about them. For I now saw how in all these various topics that had perplexed me, this man who was so renowned among them had turned out to be unable to respond to me. But thereafter I joined with him in the study of literature, to which he was highly devoted, as was I, given that I was then teaching rhetoric to young students in Carthage, reading with him either what he himself desired to read or those that I proposed to him as being fitting to his genius. However, all the efforts I had expended to advance in that sect came crashing to a halt after I met that man. I did not completely detach myself from them, but rather like someone who stays where he is because nothing better is available, I decided to remain content where I was, unless I perhaps discovered something better. Thus this Faustus, who had been the deathly snare for so many, had begun, whether he wished it or not, to loosen the very snare that had entrapped me. For your hands, O my God, guided by the secret purpose of your providence, did not forsake my soul, and out of the blood of my mother's heart and through the tears that night and day streamed from her eyes, a sacrifice was offered to you. Indeed, by what wondrous ways did you deal with me? All this you did, O my God, for the steps of a man are ordered by the Lord, and he shall arrange his way. And how shall we obtain salvation, if not from your hand, which refashions what it has made? All right, so Augustine is continuing on, as it were, in his pursuit of wisdom, of coming to know 
the truth, of pursuing the truth, of trying to understand all things. And as we also know, St. Augustine has been doing that through the sort of lens or living within the Manichaean sect. And it's in these chapters in book five that St. Augustine finally gets to meet Faustus, who's this bishop of the Manichaeans, um, who is supposed to be a sort of learned kind of prophetic figure. So yeah, it's in these pages that we read St. Augustine's meeting with him. So I don't know, Father Gregory, I don't I don't know if you have sort of anticipatory thoughts on St. Augustine's behalf or on the meeting itself, but let's talk about it. Yes. So here in this particular passage, uh, St. Augustine will draw the distinction between, on the one hand, eloquence or rhetorical facility, and then on the other hand, like wisdom or testimony to the truth. I think it's good for us to engage with this distinction uh, because it remains a kind of temptation for us to be satisfied with the former and not really attend to the latter. So wherever you find yourself in a situation where you might be preaching or teaching or testifying to the faith, it can be a temptation to like stir people up or just to kind of put people at ease or to settle for something less than a testimony to the truth. So, all right, in our own case, I'm thinking about preaching. Um, and I'm thinking about how sometimes I kind of get carried away with my own prose and I'll start speaking fast and I'll start speaking excitedly and I'll start speaking emotionally. And at the end, I feel like kind of almost exhausted by it or kind of like not not exasperated by it, but like I feel myself to have been carried away. And then I have to check myself and say, okay, what did I just do there? I think I got caught up in the moment and I was just trying to pump people up. But is it good to pump people up if in pumping them up, you might be manipulating them or controlling them saying like, do this and it'll be awesome. And then the people go ahead and do this, but you haven't sufficiently enlightened them or illumined them. And then now what are they doing with their lives? They might find that this doesn't fit. And then when they, you know, kind of take stock after the fact, they're going to look back at you and say, that guy got me real pumped up. That guy got me real animated about it, but he didn't give me reasons. And so it wasn't something that I actually did as a human act it was just like i was almost like i don't know a crazed animal going after whatever it is that he recommended so i think that it's essential in in preaching and teaching and testifying to give people principles to give people arguments to give people reasons for our hope as the apostle peter puts it because otherwise we're not really treating them like human beings we're kind of treating them like animals to be stirred up and that's debasing or that's kind of deprecating or whatever the appropriate word is you get it so i think here you see how how very important it is to distinguish between eloquence and rhetorical facility on the one hand and then wisdom and truth because we want to deal in the latter even while sometimes appealing to the former so that that way we can treat our audience as human and invite them into a, a human encounter. Yeah, there's there's a somberness, we could say, to the truth in the sense of like, it's not that it doesn't uh, involve our emotions and affect and that sort of thing, and it, it certainly should because that's part of who we are as human beings, but the truth also should stand, or it's capable of standing on its own, of speaking, you know, without having to sort of yeah, you use the word manipulate, kind of manipulate emotions or get, you know, those sort of things or kind of puff up something that doesn't correspond to reality. And I'm sure we've all had those experiences where someone's really sort of hyped up expectations and then you you encounter what they're talking about or you get to the place that they're talking about or try the food that they're talking about and it's just like, mm, no, not really. It's not that great. You know, that sort of thing. And we want to be careful and this is what St. Augustine is realizing. We want to be careful that those sort of things don't transfer over into, into our pursuit of wisdom. Again, it doesn't mean that our affect and emotions can't be involved. They should be, but they shouldn't be the sort of defining reality of, of the truth. And this is what I think Augustine encounters with Faustus. You know, people have 
talked him up. He recounts seeking or attempting to seek answers from other Manichaeans in Carthage. And when they can't answer, they've sort of deferred to the excellence and eloquence and, and, and learning of Faustus. And when they learn that Faustus is coming, it's sort of like, oh, he's coming, he's coming. It'll be great. Everything will be answered. That's kind of how I'm imagining things. And it's just not, you know, so St. Augustine gets to listen to Faustus for a bit, but then eventually he and his friends get to have conversations directly with Faustus. And there are two things that, that stand out in my mind with these interactions is one that he learns, he realizes very quickly that Faustus is neither wise nor learned, he says, you know, he has some facility with language and he's read a bit so he can, he can kind of direct and answer questions in kind of just by kind of speaking and elaborating, but not really honing in on the answer. And Augustine can see through this, kind of the smoke and mirrors type thing. The other thing too that that Faustus uses, what would I say, kind of slyly, is that he does admit when pressed that sometimes he just doesn't know things, you know, that he's not an expert in this, so he couldn't answer. So he's also good at not trapping himself. Um, so he's very skilled at that. And that's why he's he's listened to but St Augustine sees through it you know it doesn't doesn't satisfy so i don't know your your thoughts reflections on what st augustine recounts here yeah i think it brings before our eyes uh you mentioned this distinction between well learning and wisdom at the outset this kind of capacity to admit when we don't know it's we have a way of describing that and we have a way of cultivating that as christians uh, and the first step is humility so admitting that we don't know, it's a liberating thing. It's not an embarrassing thing because it means that we're not responsible in the moment for giving reasons or for giving arguments for whatever's at stake, but we are responsible as Christians for informing ourselves, you know, for making the attempt to learn as the days go on so that we can, again, give reasons for our faith. Uh, but then we also recognize, you know, we're, we're trying to learn, all right, or we're cultivating learning, you might say, the virtue of knowledge, but not so that we can be popular at cocktail parties or known for quoting whichever 19th century British author at the appropriate juncture, but so that we can ultimately be wise. Like knowledge is good in the service of wisdom. And what is the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Well, wisdom is a, is a kind of divine science or an overarching learning or an overarching way by which of seeing reality and specifically of seeing where everything fits so that we can order it. And again, we've made mention of this at various points that it pertains to the wise to order. And so in our own Christian lives, we want to make orderly use of the good things that God gives us to use also of our interior lives, you know, of our emotions, but also our thoughts and desires. Um, and then of the relationships that that arise from our encounters with other people. And so wisdom is, it's just a more embracing term. It's a more encompassing term. And it also, yeah, it just brings before our mind's eye that as human beings, we're not just knowledge robots, we're relational, and that this communion dimension is the most important dimension because ultimately we're made for communion with the Most High God, which, you know, knowing Him and loving Him are the ways by which we go about it. So I think, yeah, that's it's somewhat helpful to, to have those in mind as we proceed. Yeah, and this, this I guess, failure of Faustus um, to satisfy Augustine's questions, Augustine's inquiries. Also, I guess the failure of Faustus, not just to answer, but to have wisdom and learning and knowledge, sets Augustine against, we could say, sets him further down the line of turning from the Manichaean 
sect and way of life and that sort of thing. He just becomes more and more disillusioned. So yeah, Augustine says that he, he's in a way sort of stops making progress in the sect. So it just kind of puts a stop. It's kind of a pin in Augustine's participation in the sect. Now that's just not to say that he leaves right away, but there this is a real turning point in Augustine's life and and life as a manichae. You know, remember at the outset when he when he became a manichae, um, he was looking, searching for wisdom, for truth, and it just has not satisfied. It hasn't done what he thought it would do, and he's kind of getting fed up with this. So that's kind of where he leaves it with Faustus. It's kind of like disappointing, disillusioned, kind of done. Um, any final thoughts on where we are with St. Augustine? Be, you know, we'll, we'll carry on with this adventure. As we said in the bonus episode for book five, you know, this is, there's a lot of travel and movement and stuff. So in the, in the coming chapters, we'll cover that. But this is where we are with Faustus. It's just kind of a big letdown for St. Augustine. Yeah, it is a big letdown. And also the way that he navigates it is helpful for our own Christian conversion, because he's going to talk about the fact that He'll be unwilling to dive into the deep end with Christianity because of this experience, because he dove into the deep end with Manichaeanism, and then he came to discover that there was no deep end, and he almost broke his neck diving into what was in fact a shallow end, a very shallow end. And so people experience this in all kinds of ways in their life where an early commitment produces an early trauma and then a subsequent reticence about future commitments. And wherever we find conversion, it's always going to involve commitment first to the Lord, to the people with whom we are converting or in a process of ongoing conversion, you know, to certain practices and disciplines and things like that. And, and commitment can be super difficult, especially in the 21st century, and especially when we've, we've been burned by commitments in the past. So I think that we can invite, you know, St. Augustine, ask his prayers uh, to, yeah, intercede for us or on our behalf so that we might, yeah, have the courage or have the confidence to make commitments that we know to be true in faith, even while acknowledging that we are, you know, broken vessels or that we're they're fragile human beings who might not always, you know, go about it in the best way. Well, there you have it. We'll see how Augustine reacts to all of this in um, the coming episode. So stay tuned. Uh, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>